We're picking up our study of the Gospel of Luke here this morning. It's a good morning to be uh, studying this together. Coming to the Lord's table, being reminded of His grace and His love for us as we pick up our study. Grateful for Michael last week preaching for me, being up here, opening the Word. Uh, Last week I was in uh, Alaska. Anna asked for a graduation present to go back to Alaska to uh, see some family, see friends and, well, close friends that are like family. And... uh, and so she asked for that last year at this time. We're talking about her senior year this year. And she said, I want to go to Alaska. And we had enough miles built up from when we lived there, traveling back and forth, to, for me to be able to take her and Amber there last week. And, uh, and so that, that was a good time. She's still there, actually. She's going to fly back tomorrow. And, uh, but uh, it, was, it was a good time. But I appreciate Mike just opening the word. I'm grateful the Lord has blessed us with with uh, people here who can open the Word and teach and, and grow in our study of the Word. And uh, we're just blessed with such a, a rich amount of people. And uh, so thanks, Mike, for that. And, and uh, this morning, we are looking here at Luke chapter 16. And we're looking at verses 13 through 31. And I'm going to go ahead and read that for us here beginning here at Luke 16. Just pick up our study from a couple weeks ago. Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. 
And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear from them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we are just so grateful to be here together, celebrating your table, celebrating the deep love of Jesus, the the powerful love of Jesus. Lord Jesus, that sent you to the cross to die and to rise from the dead, to not only forgive our sins, but to justify us in your sight, to give us life and abundant life, both here and and in the life to come. So Father, we are just grateful and we do worship Jesus. And I pray now that as we are in this Word and in Your text, that it would fall over us, that it would deepen our love for You and our love for others, that it would change our lives, cause us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, This week, as I was spending my mornings preparing and looking at uh, this text, I couldn't help but think, actually, of a book by Ted Tripp that many of you parents know, Shepherding a Child's Heart. Many of you are familiar with that book. I was grateful for that book as a parent because it challenged me to think about parenting in a little different way. Uh, It challenged me to stop and to consider the hearts of my children when I deal with them, not just their behavior. You know, it's easy as a parent to just look at the behavior of your children. You know, stop that. Do this. Get over here. Sit down. Stand up. Whatever. And just to be thinking about their behavior. But it's infinitely harder and infinitely deeper to actually get into the motives of their heart. But parenting is really about shaping the hearts of our children, not just the behavior. And that book was a book that really challenged me. And I was thinking about that this, as I was preparing the sermon. And I was thinking about just the, 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 the reality of what it is to shepherd our children's heart. On a, on a practical level, one of the things that, that challenged me and how that, how that book played itself out in my life is I was thinking when our children were little, if they were having a fight, I'm going to go back to the way past because they don't fight now. But, uh, but when they were little and they used to fight, a typical scenario would be this. One child's playing with something and they put something down. The other child comes over and picks it up and starts playing with it. Right? Now you see where that fight's going if you have a child, right? Hey, Dad, he took my thing and I was playing with it. Now it's easy to say, hey, give it back. And they give it back. Say, okay, apologize. Just say, you know, it's easy just to deal with it at that level. But that book challenged me to think a little bit deeper and to stop and to ask some questions. To ask questions like this, okay, your sibling just took this away from you. How would love respond to this? How would love respond? Love would respond by saying, you know what? Turn the other cheek. Let them have it. Give it to them. Do good to those who persecute you. Show love to people who take things from you. Humble yourself and give. Isn't that how love would respond? 
So how are you going to respond to this? You've just been offended. You're going to cry for justice? Or are you going to turn the other cheek? And to the one who does the offense, hey, how would love respond to this? How would love walk into a room and play? Does love walk in a room and say, I want this and just take it? Or does love walk in a room and say, what are they doing? How can I serve them? So both of you at this moment, how would love respond? Work it out that way. The book challenged me to think about that. And here's, here's the thing that really impacted me and, and, and what's been my passion as I think about this as, as a parent is I don't want my child to go around thinking that at every moment in life they need perfect justice given to them. Because it will never come. Right? Should, should they walk through life saying, if you offend me, I expect perfect justice for me right now. Or should they walk through life saying, I'm going to turn the other cheek. I'm going to do good to those who do bad to me. I'm going to serve those who hate me. See, the reality of our heart is to say, listen, love is required all the time. We don't get to say this is one of those situations where love is not required. We get to pull it. It's off limits. No, love is required. Well, where is that learned? That's learned when they take your doll away from you. That's learned when they take your Lego away from you. It's learned at that moment. There's the situation. Now, if I were to teach them, hey, man, what matters right now at this moment is that you get justice served to you, that you get everything to you, then what am I teaching them to have? A self-focused heart. That everything's about you. That when you're hurt, you're now supposed to be the drama king or queen, and you're supposed to let all that out everywhere. No. Every moment is a moment to love. That's what the gospel says. And I was grateful for a guy like Ted Tripp to challenge us to think about, what are you shepherding in your children's heart? Now, I was thinking about this this week because the issue on the table here, the issue on the table here is the hearts of not only the disciples, but the hearts of the Pharisees. Jesus is shepherding the hearts of the disciples. A couple weeks ago, we looked at this as as he's teaching them here at the beginning of chapter 16, where he says, listen, the things I'm saying are pretty intense and strong, and and I want you to grab hold of these things and and, and be responsible with it, and, and, and don't live in this world thinking about the moment and wealth and you, but whatever God's blessed you with, I want you to invest it into the lives of others. I want you to have an others mindset, a love mindset. He's challenging his disciples. Because you see, if you're living for wealth or comfort or the stuff of this world, then you have a self-focused life. And if you have a self-focused life, you cannot serve God. Because God requires an others-focused life. That's the heart of the gospel. Focus is on self, you can't serve God. This is why when a child get something taken away or something is mean done to them. I don't think what's the best way to get justice at this moment. I want to ask my child at this moment, what would love do? Love would forgive. Love would serve. I don't want you to have a self-focused life. You're going to have many more injustices than your doll being taken away. You're going to have many deeper hurts than this. Let's start now with a love response rather than a self-centered response.
Jesus is trying to get these disciples to see this. He's trying to say, listen, you start living for the things of this world. You start living for money. You start living for wealth. You got a self-focused mind. And you know what's going to happen? When the end of life comes, you will not be ready. You will not be prepared. All you will have is your money. And money will not get you into the kingdom of God. I was challenging his disciples on this. And of course, earshot of this are the Pharisees. And as we'll see in a minute, they loved money. They lived for the moment. And as a result, they get offended. So we're going to see this. We're going to see this whole drama play out here. And as we do, there's a couple things we're going to see. It's your outline and your bulletin. You can see it. We're going to see that your actions reveal what you love. The issue that Jesus is getting at is what do you love in this world? The way that you can answer that question is by what do you, how, do you, how do you respond? What are your actions in life, they will reveal what you love. And here's the reality. What you love determines how you live. These are the two things that we'll see here. And it's going to be a challenge for us, but hopefully Jesus will shepherd our hearts as we go through this. Hopefully Jesus will shepherd our heart and we'll begin to see that living for this world is worthless. Loving it will not help us. But loving the kingdom of God, loving others, is where it's at. Hopefully we'll see this. Your hearts will be shepherded. You'll be both challenged and encouraged. So that's what I hope will happen. Let's look here at the first thing. Your actions reveal what you love. Let's pick up at verse 13. I'm doing this for a reason because I want to tie into what we looked at a couple weeks ago and, and get into the flow of the story. So Jesus says in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or some translations say mammon, which means wealth, stuff. Okay, You can't serve both. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at this, and really verse 13 is the summary of the first 12 verses of this of chapter 16, in which Jesus is making this point. He's spoken very direct, strong words. He wants the disciples to take this seriously. And what he wants them to do is invest their life not into their wealth or their personal stuff, their personal growth in, in the sense of just accumulating stuff in this world. He wants them to invest their lives into others. Whatever they've been blessed with in God, use it to serve others all the time, everywhere. And then he makes the statement, you cannot serve this world and Jesus. You cannot say, I'm going to build up my own empire to myself, and I want Jesus along for the ride. You can't. Why? They're mutually exclusive realities. To live for this world means you live for yourself. To live for the kingdom of God means you live to serve others. To live for yourself says, when someone takes my toy away, I need justice now. To live for the kingdom of God says, when someone takes my toy away, I give them my other toy. See, two different worlds. Jesus is saying, you cannot serve this world and serve my world. You cannot add Jesus to your life. You are either all in living for his kingdom are all in living for your own kingdom, but the two cannot go together because you will love one and hate the other. Right? I can't go through this life thinking all about me, me, me. Oh yeah, and Jesus. 
That theology is basically saying this. Jesus, with my brains and your brawn, we could go a long way together. Right? You got the power to make it happen. I got the smarts to make it to, to, to come up with the plan. Jesus said, that's just dumb. So he says, you can't serve these two things. Now notice what happened. When he says this, how is the, what's the response of the Pharisees? Verse 14. They were lovers of money, so when they heard these things, they ridiculed them. They ridiculed them. They mocked them. Why? Because, you see, they were really out about building their own empire to themselves. That's what they lived for. That's what they were building up. And so Jesus comes in and says a pretty harsh thing. Think about this. These were very religious people who believed that they were going to heaven. They believed that they were serving God. They had uh, disciplined themselves to live a very disciplined life in the flesh. So externally, they looked very law-abiding. Externally, they, they dressed godly. They spoke godly. They, they, they didn't do bad things, right? They didn't drink, smoke, chew, or do the hoochie-coo and go with, with girls who do, right? They didn't do that. They stayed away from all of that externally, but in their heart, what were they doing? They were building up an empire to themselves. It was about their money. It was about their wealth. It was about their status in society. It was about them. And Jesus said, do you understand something? If I'm looking into your heart, not your actions, I don't see a love of the kingdom of God. I see a love of the kingdom of self even though externally you appear very godly. And so what do they do? They ridicule him. You see, your actions reveal what you love. So when Jesus comes along and makes a harsh statement like he does in verse 13, what do they do? They don't fall down and say, I want to love others. I want to, to invest my life into others. I want to give. I want to be that kind of person. They say, oh, yeah, right. He can't say that. He's the biggest lawbreaker in the world, man, because he hangs out with people who do all those things. I'd never hang out with the people he hangs out with. They start ridiculing him. Your actions reveal what you love. And your actions reveal what you love, specifically when you come face-to-face with the teachings of Jesus. And if you've been here for any weeks, you know, for the past few weeks, haven't you noticed Jesus has said pretty sharp things, hasn't he? This has been in-your-face theology. And those that back away and fight it, Right? Those that back away and fight it, he's saying, listen, that reveals what you love, that you don't love the kingdom of God. So Jesus goes for it. Look what he does in verse 15. He's going to lay it out for him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted above men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, he talk, he, he, Jesus basically reveals their heart, and he reveals the heart of the Father. Notice what he says. He reveals their heart. You are those who justify yourselves before men. What does that mean? They want to make sure that everyone around them thinks that they're godly. That's their worldview. They live only on the horizontal plane. I want to make sure people think good of me. I want to make sure people think I'm godly. I would never do this because I wouldn't want people to think bad of me. I want to make sure that you think that I'm godly. Therefore, when I fast, I'm going to make sure everyone knows I'm fasting. And when I, you know, I follow the law, I'm going to make sure everyone knows I follow the law. I'm living before men. But here he's saying, but your heart is far from God. 
far from God. You've heard me say this before, but many people will say, well, God knows my heart, right, when they're trying to justify themselves. And my thought in my mind when I hear that is always, yes, he does. (laughs) He knows your heart. He knows every deep, dark thought in your heart. And in this case, Jesus is saying, God knows your heart. And I'll tell you what, men look at your external righteousness and they give you the thumbs up. God looks at you and says, you are an abomination. To take a form of godliness, but to deny the heart of godliness, that's an abomination to God. To take a form of righteousness, but to deny love for others, what does Paul say about that? That's noise in the sight of God. It's worthless, it's useless. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. You can have all the forms of godliness you want, but if you don't love, if that's not the driving force, it's an abomination to God. This is is the reason why I I thought of parenting. I thought this is why when when something goes wrong and and, and kids are fighting, the issue for me isn't who who started it and, and who was the one at fault. The issue for me is... You offended person, will you love and forgive? And you who did the offense, will you stop and recognize you exalted yourself above your brother or sister? You see, if we can't get down to the issue of love, then our forms of godliness are worthless to God. This is what Jesus is saying. Do you see that? Your heart is an abomination because you don't love others. You might follow the externals of the law. But if you can't love God and love your neighbor as yourself, then that external form is an abomination. So this is what he's getting at. And so so here's what happens. Jesus makes this comment. They react with ridicule. They react with scorn. You see, because your actions reveal what you love. When you come face to face with Jesus, how you respond to this teaching determines whether or not you love God God and others, or whether you love yourself. If your action is like, I don't want to hear that. You're wrong, or here's my excuses why I don't need to, or here's why this person doesn't deserve it, or whatever, then you're loving yourself. Your actions reveal that. But there's even more to it than this. Because, we'll look at our second point, what you love determines how you live. So now it gets a little bit deeper. Here's what Jesus is going to do. He's just made some pretty strong statements, right? He made a strong statement. You justify yourself before men. God knows your hearts. You're an abomination to him. Now you could imagine, we can assume by the way this text unfolds, what the potential response of the Pharisees would be. Right? You could assume this. What would, what would we assume the response would be? Here would be the potential response of the Pharisees. How dare you say I'm an abomination to God? I follow the law of God. That's all I do is follow the law of God. You're the one hanging out with the sinners. You're the one living that depraved life, hanging out with these bad people. Look at my life. I follow the law. Now, I believe that Jesus is preempting that thought by what he says here. Now, I'm telling you that's how I've interpreted this. You might disagree with this. But I think what he's doing and what he's going to say next is he's going to say, listen, you're not a law follower, you're a law breaker. So he's going to make his point, then he's going to illustrate his point in their lives for them. Notice how he makes the point. Look at verse 16. 
The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, you might read that and go, okay, I was tracking with Jesus up until this kind of ethereal sermon, right? Seems a little disjointed. So so here's what I want to do. Let's kind of just stop and just look at this in its context. He's surrounded. There's, There's three groups of people around him. The hurting, the poor, the lame. The disciples, the 12, and the Pharisees. By Jesus touching and connecting with these hurting, the poor, the lame, the tax gatherers, the sinners, the prostitutes, by him forgiving them, healing them, eating with them, touching them, they see him as a lawbreaker. They say Jesus is the lawbreaker. This is what they're upset about. They feel that he has violated the law. Now Jesus is going to say, I'm not a lawbreaker. Not one ounce of the law has been broken. Okay, let me, show you, let me show you how I believe this is what he's saying. First thing he says, law and prophets were until John. Putting this in the less than paraphrase, Jesus is saying this. Guys, we have our Old Testament, right? Using our vernacular. We have our Old Testament. And that existed until John came. Now, why does he mark off John? Well, what does the Old Testament do? The Old Testament lays out the heart of God, the standards of God, every, every part of God, right? It lays it all out. And then it says, one is coming to write this on your hearts. One is coming to fulfill this. One is coming. This Messiah is coming. The anointed one's coming, right? Everyone's waiting for that. That's what the Old Testament says. John then comes along, and what does he say? He's here. He's arrived. So we have the law. It existed until John. So Jesus is giving a little history. Okay? Got the Old Testament, guys. John came, said it was here, and guess what? It was in me. I'm that one. He pointed to me as the Messiah. And then he says, since then, since John came, the good news has been preached, the good news of the kingdom. So Old Testament anticipated the Messiah. John comes, says the Messiah's come, and now guess what I've been doing? I've been running around Galilee saying, this is a powerful point. You better listen, man. When that sound system comes up, you better start writing. (laughs) Did that get louder? Felt like it got louder there for a second. John came, or Jesus came since John, and said, I'm going to preach. I'm preaching the kingdom. And that kingdom has been proclaimed to you faithfully. Not only that, throngs of people have come, and they're trying to get into the kingdom of God. That's that people that he's surrounded with. The sick, the lame, the prostitutes, the Gentiles. They're all pressing into the kingdom. The very thing that they hate. They're all just pressing in. But then he says this. But I want to tell you guys something. In all that's happened, with the law and the prophets, and then John announcing it's me, and then me preaching, and these people coming, not one law has been violated. And in fact, it would be much easier for all of creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything, to disappear in the snap of a finger than it would be for one piece of God's law to go away. Nothing has been violated, what I believe he's saying. Not one law. Now, I think what Jesus is doing is he's talking about himself. So so we've got to catch this logic because this is where he's going to turn the corner on. 
Guys, the law hasn't been violated here. You're the lawbreaker. I'm not the lawbreaker. You are. How does he make the point that they are the lawbreaker? That's what this next verse does. Verse 18 is where he says, I haven't violated the law. You have. Notice verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Why does this get inserted here? You read this and you go, this just seems random. It's not random when you follow the flow. The flow is this. Jesus has told his disciples earlier on in 16, what you have been given, I want you to use to invest into the lives of others. What you have been given has not been meant for you. It's meant to invest into others so that when you die, those people will be there to receive you into heaven, those that you've invested in. His challenge to disciples, have this other's mindset. Everything that you read and study in the Bible is not to build yourself up. It's not to advance your own kingdom or your own flesh. Everything you've received in the Bible is to do what? To love God and love others. What do the Pharisees do? They love money. And because they love money, they serve themselves. So when someone serves themselves and they take the Bible, what do they do with the Bible? They manipulate it to get what they want out of it. What did the Pharisees do? God allowed, under Moses, for there to be a provision for a divorce. For protective reasons. To protect someone. Now, I'm not going to get into all this because I don't think the point is to talk about divorce here. I think the point is to talk about how they manipulated this law. And the issue here is they took this thing that God allowed to protect people, and rather than use it as a means to protect someone, they used it as a means for their own flesh. So what did they do? Well, if your wife burned the food, get rid of her. If she no longer satisfies you, get rid of her. If she no longer meets your needs, get rid of her. If she no longer makes you feel fulfilled, get rid of her. If she no longer makes you feel happy, get rid of her. See, that's what selfish people do when they read the Bible. They take the law of God and they say, how does this benefit me? Christian takes the word of God and says, how does this cause me to love God and love others? A religiously lost person takes the Bible and says, how does this benefit me? How can I make this about me? So people, the Pharisees would say, she no longer satisfies me. She no longer fulfills me. She no longer meets my needs. I'm going to give her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. And they were involved in wife swapping. Because some guys say, I I think she's better than my wife. Okay, you don't satisfy me. I'm going to get rid of you. I'm going to marry her now. Oh, you no longer satisfy me. I'm getting rid of you. Let me try her. And Jesus is saying, you're calling me a lawbreaker? I'm going to talk about one thing. Divorce. I can prove that you have violated the law because you have taken this thing and you've used it to serve yourself. You are the lawbreaker here. This was their biggest, most obvious example because everyone can see it when it happens. Right? Wait a minute. I thought that Pharisee was married to her. Oh, not anymore. She burned the food. Now he's married to her. Oh, like a soap opera, right? And Jesus is saying, see, 
This was not given for you to prosper like this. You're thinking about it all wrong. You see, the call of the gospel is to love and to serve and to serve her even when she doesn't meet your needs and to serve her even when she doesn't fulfill you anymore and to serve her even when you don't get all that you feel you deserve out of life. You're going to serve her and love her because the call of the gospel is to say, I am not living for myself anymore. I'm living to love God and love my neighbor and believe that in the end, God will reward. And when someone pursues the gospel and that love, that's their mindset. You see, what you love determines how you live. If you love yourself, then you will use the Bible to justify your selfish actions. If you love others, then everything you read in the Bible fuels that. Self-focus or other focus. So this is why I believe Jesus puts this in there. But now what he does is he returns it back to his original point. Right? So, so I haven't violated the law, Jesus says. Not one of the laws. This whole kingdom that's come through me has not been in violation of the law. Actually, the system that you have created has been in violation of the law there's the evidence how light you treat marriage. And then he says, so let's go back to the point. And the point is this. If you live for the kingdom of this world, you'll have nothing in the end. So he tells a parable to kind of summarize and bring this point to a close. When I read this parable, I think about it like a movie. This is how my brain thinks. So I see four scenes in this movie. Four very simple scenes. And as we look at these four scenes in, in this parable, you'll see Jesus' point. It's pretty simple. Let, let's just look at these scenes. I'll make some observations and we'll wrap it up here. Look at the scene one. It's verses 19 through 21. Pretty simple. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, pretty disgusting picture, is it not? First, you have this massive contrast. You've got this rich man. You've got this clothed in purple, right, which is just fine linen. And he's eating expensive food all day, every day. All those were just pictures of this is like a really rich guy. In our day, we would say that we wouldn't use maybe those descriptions, but we'd say he lives in a billion-dollar mansion. He's got his own jet. He's got his own helicopter. You know, we'd use those kind of descriptive terms to say this is, an, in another stratosphere, a rich guy. Way out there, beyond just a normal rich guy. This guy is the super rich. In contrast, there's this poor man. His name is Lazarus. Mark that name. You'll want to know it later. Important that Jesus gives this guy a name. Okay, just, just store that in your brain. What do we know about Lazarus? Well, we know that he's poor. We know that he is so poor that he can't even afford bandages to cover his sores. So he's sick and poor. And he's at the worst state because he can't even cover his sores. And so the animals come up and lick his wounds. That's how bad this guy is. Now, mind you, who's around Jesus? He's got rich Pharisees that love money. He's got his disciples. And he's got a bunch of really sick, poor people around him, too people who are like Lazarus. So he's got all these people present that are in the story here. 
Okay? But there is scene one, massive contrast. And in scene one, all that Lazarus wants to do is lay underneath the table and grab the scraps of food that fall from the table. Now you might think, how many scraps of food are going to fall from their table? You ever thought that? Wonder about that? So let me just remember, just put the visual picture in your mind. When they ate in that day, they were kind of reclining on a couch like this. Whoa, hello. That was me probably. Okay, sorry, Jordan. <laughs> Jordan's like, don't do that. Okay. I'll lay this way. They're laying on a table on their arm like this. And they're eating like this with their fingers. So picture gravity just dropping the food, Right? So a lot, you know, a fair amount of food's probably falling off there. I mean, I don't think I could eat that way without having a pile underneath my, my table. So all this guy wants to do is lay underneath the table, and whatever falls to the ground, he wants to eat it. As he's covered in welts and sores and all kinds of disgusting things. There's our, there's our study. Here's scene two. Scene two now is their death. They die. The poor man died. Notice the imagery. And was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And said Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now when I read this, I'm not necessarily developing a theology of the afterlife here. I think these are wonderful pictures. There's no other scriptures anywhere other than this story that, say, that, that describe the afterlife like this. But I don't think the point here is to develop a doctrine of heaven. I think the point here is to get to the emotion of the story. Notice the picture. What's the picture? The picture is the, the, the poor man is being carried by angels up to Abraham. How do you think those who were sick and lame heard that? They've been told their whole life, you're outside the kingdom of God. They're not even allowed in the temple. They're outcasts. There's no way they're, I mean, some of these Pharisees would say that you're not even getting into heaven. You've got this affliction upon you because of the judgment of God. And he's saying, no, actually, you poor person, you lame person, you're not going to heaven. God's going to shepherd you all the way into his presence. And you're going to be part of this beautiful thing. I think that's encouraging. I think those would be healing words to those people who were hurt there. Of course, the rich man, what happens to him? He's in Hades. He's in torment. And then, to me, the abomination of abominations. This rich guy has the audacity to say to Abraham, could you send Lazarus down here to bring me some comfort? I read that, I'm just like, oh, I can't believe he asked that. Why? Day in and day out, Lazarus has been under his table in pain and in agony. He doesn't even have bandages to cover his sores. Crying for just a little morsel of food that would drop. And this guy just passes on by. He's got more than enough to cover his sores. He's got more than enough to feed him. He just passes on by. Why? Because you see, when you live for yourself, you don't see others. You just can't see them. All you see is yourself. You're blind to what's going on around you. All you pick up is yourself. Now, he's still self-absorbed. Hey, he's up there. He could bring me relief. All he's got to do is just bring me some, you know, touch me and just bring me some relief from this torment. 
Just cool my tongue. I'm in anguish from the heat down here. Like the audacity of this. This rich man is still self-centered, still self-absorbed. Now wanting Lazarus to serve him. Scene two. That's scene two. Now let's look at scene three. Scene three. There's a response to this because this man could have used what God had given him to bless Lazarus, to bring comfort to him. So now he's going to realize something that that's, this is his end, right? You live for yourself. All you have is yourself in the end. You have no one else. You live for your own kingdom. All you will have is your own kingdom in the end. And that will not bring relief. That's what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 25, scene 3 now. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So he says two things to him. Number one, when you were living in this world, you lived for that kingdom. But that kingdom is temporal. And now it's over. And now you're there. That kingdom cannot translate. You, you, you build into that. If that's what you invest in, it does not have any eternal value. And now you're there. And the second thing he says is, and you, no one from here can go to you, and no one from you can come to me. There's a chasm. It's final at that moment. It wasn't final when you were alive, but it is final now that you're dead. This is it. You live for the moment, that's it. Lazarus, he suffered, he was in great pain, but God shepherded him up into the very presence and healed him and restored him, gave him blessing. And this is the reality. Now, that leads to scene four. Scene four. In scene four in the story, now we have this man wanting to get the word out how bad hell is. Wants to get the word out. So notice 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, that's Lazarus, right? If you can't send him to me to give me relief, then send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place in torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And he said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So he's begging him, please. I need to send a message to my brother. People like us go to hell. We're the ones going to hell. Not those people that we pointed to that we thought were going to hell. It's people like us who, who build a religious shell around themselves, but inwardly they build their own kingdoms. They're living for themselves. Could you please warn my brothers so they don't come here? Abraham says, no. They have the scriptures. And he says, no, you don't understand. If someone would rise from the dead, that'll get their attention. And he says, no. You see, if their heart isn't moved by the very word of God, you could send someone to rise from the dead, and they won't repent. Now, remember I told you, mark the name Lazarus. Important to know this. Okay, I'm going to give, ask you a Bible question. Even if you don't know the answer to the question, you can fake the answer. 
okay? You can fake it. You should figure this out, okay? I'm going to ask you to answer the question, okay? And you can fake it based on the fact that I told you, remember that it's important to know the name of Lazarus, okay? There's your hint. Do you know what the trigger event was that caused the Pharisees to put their plan into motion to kill Jesus? Okay, remember, they had, they've been dreaming for a while. They needed to kill this guy. But something happened. There was an event that happened. And when that event happened, they said, this is it, let's kill him. It was the resurrection of? Hey. Now, should I ask how many of you knew that? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> how many of you were faking? No, I'm kidding. Okay. It was the resurrection of Lazarus. When Jesus rose Lazarus, raised, raised, whatever, brought him forth from the dead. <laughs> What's the right grammar word there, Heather? Rose or raised? Raised? Raised. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees said, uh-oh, now he's raising people from the dead. We have to kill him now. Jesus is foreshadowing this in the story. He's saying in the story, hey, send Lazarus from the dead. And he says, do you understand? One rises from the dead. They will not repent. They have to come face to face with actually what the word of God says. Which says what? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And if you can't start living with that heart and that mind, And if that doesn't pierce your heart to say, okay, I'm living for this. I'm going to live to love God and love my neighbor. And so I'm going to do good to those who persecute me. I'm going to forgive those who hurt me. I'm going to do what I'm going to focus on for my life. This is where I'm going. If that word doesn't change your life, then if 50 people rise from the dead in front of us, it won't matter. But not only did Lazarus rise from the dead, and they wanted to kill Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead. And what did they want to do? Kill the apostles. You see, they were not moved by the very word of God. So Jesus is saying this. Guys, if you reach deep down inside, you are not moved to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So you use the law to serve yourself. You break the law, you violate the law, and you're really living to build your own kingdom. And that kingdom lasts only as long as you're alive. And then when you die, and you're in eternity, that kingdom will do nothing for you. That's what he's saying. So, let's wrap this up. I look at this text, there's three things that I have pulled from this text. Three kind of principles. First principle that I pull from this text is that if you live for this world, you cannot live for the kingdom of God. If you are obsessed with your bank account, obsessed with your money, obsessed with this, obsessed with earning, obsessed with this, obsessed with time, obsessed with that, obsessed with your freedom, your glory, your house, your whatever, if that's what you live for, your space, then you will always make excuses for not loving people and not loving God. You'll always come up with some excuse to use the law of God to actually pull away and, and go against people. See, if you live for this world, you cannot live for the kingdom of God. It's the first principle I pulled. Second principle that I pulled from this. What you love will be revealed. When you come face to face with the teaching of Jesus, you will either be prompted to repent or prompted to refute. 
You'll either make excuses or you'll fall down and say, Jesus, give me that heart. So when you hear this teaching, it's going to reveal your heart. And if the heart is a heart of repentance, you're in a great place. If your heart is a heart of, no, no, you don't understand. If you understood my situation, you're in a bad place. What you love will be revealed. Then the third principle I pull from this. What you live for determines how you will read your Bible. It determines how you'll conform to the heart of the law. And it will determine how you follow Jesus. Right? What you live for determines how you'll read your Bible, conform to the heart of the law, and follow Jesus. So, the question is this. What do you love? I want you to think about this in three spheres of your life. If you are a parent, I want to ask you this question. What drives your parenting? Just the external shell of your children? We've got to go deeper. We've got to ask questions. What do you love? What are you loving right now? How does love respond to this? We want to bring this teaching right here to the hearts of our children. We don't want to just stop that they obey me. We don't want to just get it so that I can say, give the toy back. I want to challenge my children to think, what would love do here? Because if I'm not approaching it from that point, then I'm raising my kids to be self-focused. Even though they might give the toy back, even though they might say, I'm sorry, even though they might say, I forgive you, they might do all of those things externally. But if all I'm focusing on is their sense of justice, by the time they're out of my house, they're going to be living for themselves. They will never be pushing themselves to say, I want to live for others. I want to serve. Right? So as parents, let's think about this, how we raise our children. But second, if you're married in this room, I want you to stop and think, your marriage is not about what fulfills you. Your marriage is about you having the privilege and the opportunity to show love to this world by loving your spouse in the good and the bad and the ugly. So it's not about you and whether or not Heather meets my needs. It's about whether or not I will come to the point where I say, God, you have called me to show love to her whether she has earned it or not, whether she deserves it or not, whether she meets my needs or not. That's what God's called me to do. To love her, to have that kind of focus. But we also need to have this not only with our children and not only in our marriages, but we also need to have this love be the ethic of our corporate gathering. We get close to each other, we hurt each other, we struggle with each other, we don't always get along. We're sinners, right? Large room of sinners. And the question is this. If I go through here expecting justice from you all the time, then I'm thinking of myself. So when we relate to each other, let's relate to each other. Not through our preferences, not through our differences, not through whether or not you were nice to me or not nice to me, or whether you did this and I did that. or blah, blah, blah. Forget about that. We have the privilege to love each other. So let's just pray, God, just give me a heart of love. Don't give me a heart that withdraws and runs to the corners. Give me a heart to engage with your love. Is there a cost? Absolutely. It's going to cost you your life. Right? That's a good spot for an amen. Thank you, John. Right? It will cost you everything. And Jesus says, no greater love is this 
that one would lay down his life for his friends, right? That's the heart. Yes, I'm willing to die to myself and to be out there to love you. I'm willing to die to everything. See, this is the kind of stuff that the kingdom of God pushes us towards. And when it pushes us towards that, it's hard and it hurts, but hopefully we repent. We say, Jesus, work that into my life. This is what he wants his disciples to see. And this is what he's challenging the Pharisees to get. So the question I have for you is, what do you love? What do you love? Let's bow your head. Let's just pray. Just seek the Lord and ask God to fashion within our hearts love in the truest sense. Let's pray together. Father, I am in awe of your deep, deep love. We sung of that. We sung of it with a song that had emotion and passion to it. There's no other way to sing a song about your love than to be pushed to the bounds emotionally like that song did earlier. But we need to be reminded your love is powerful. It's vast. But it's also self-sacrificing. So Lord, as we consider this, may your Spirit reveal the areas where we're building kingdoms to ourselves. May it challenge us. I pray for us as parents, those that are parents in this room, may we shepherd the hearts of our children to love. To not just obey, but to love. And out of that love, obey. May our marriages be marked not by a sense of fairness or a sense of self-centered what I deserve, but when our spouses sin against us, may we be marked by saying, Lord, let me die to myself and love. Let me lay down my life and love. And in our relationships in this body, sometimes there's conflict, sometimes there's issues. Lord, let us not be absorbed with ourselves and what we think is fair and right. God, give us a heart of love. It's hard but may we die, go through the process of dying. That we might be investing our life into others and not into our own kingdom. Because that kingdom has an end. Your kingdom goes on forever. Lord, give us that vision. May we live that way. I pray this in the vast, deep love of Jesus. Amen.